Welcome to a Meaningful Marketplace. I'm Sarah Massoni from Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center, where I've helped countless dreamers launch their new food products. It's the science of taking a food delight from the kitchen to mass manufacturing and still keeping its great taste. That's what I do. I've been called the woman with the million-dollar palate, although I haven't tried to cash that check yet. Listen in weekly for real-life stories. I'm Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce and author of Preservation Pantry, modern canning from root to top and stem to core. I love inspiring business owners to get started on their journeys, encouraging folks to be part of their local community, and I'm excited to help business owners tell their stories. Join us as we explore the journeys of women entrepreneurs in the food and beverage industry. Hello and welcome to Masonian Marshall, the Meaningful Marketplace. Thanks for joining us as we hear the stories of female food entrepreneurs. We're glad that you joined us today. We're here with stories of hope and inspiration for all of our food friends out there. This is Sarah Marshall, owner of Marshall's Hot Sauce. And Sarah Massoni of Oregon State University's Food Innovation Center. Sarah Massoni, we got to hang out in real life person this week. That was so fun. It seems like a light years away, but it was actually just a week ago that we did that last Tuesday, right? Yeah, it was last Tuesday. It was super fun. We got to go out to um, a new event space called the Black Barn that's in Southwest Portland. If people are looking for an event space, it's really cool. Some cute. Um, yeah. folks are working on it. It's like part farm, part event, part beautiful space. <laughs> super yeah. awesome. It's we a, isn't it like a hundred year old family farm that the gentleman had lived there his whole life? And then yeah. sold it to some new folks to take care of it who say they're going to live there till they're a hundred. Yeah. It's super cool. I love it. It's um, I like that, you know, anytime that land gets sold, I always hope that they're keeping it for something great, like a farm instead of a development. And so that's what they said too, that the neighborhood was really happy that, um, that they were going to continue to, to farm there and do cool stuff. So if anybody's looking for a space, they should check them out. And we were there to celebrate Sabejo, which is a new um, Singaporean uh, samba. Yeah, sambo yeah. sauces. Chili sauces. So Sarah and I were lucky enough to go and celebrate their launch with them and check it out. So if people are looking for new sauces to try, they're really fun. And uh, the owners are Holly and Pat, and we're going to have them on the show here pretty soon. Uh, but we just wanted to tell people about them because they're yeah. really and they have a little shop on Northwest 23rd where the old pop Portland popcorn and um, the St. Cupcake were when you go down the little stairs there. Um, yeah. I don't know exactly what the address is, but you can go pick up some sambal from them there. Yeah. And we tried everything. They made us some really, really fun Singapore dishes that there was lots of things that I hadn't tried before. Sarah, did you have any faves? I actually really like the pork belly. Same. It was so good. It was so good. They made these really special dishes and then shared kind of the tradition of Singapore of why you would have them and what they were made for. So that one specifically was made for women after they had given birth. To <laughs> well, we aren't in that category, but it sure tasted good. We're not in that category, but it was wonderful. It was so yeah. fun. A lovely night. So um, everyone should check them out and we'll let you guys know when they're going to be on the show. Yeah. Uh, who have a special guest with us today. We have Sarah 
I'm going to do it this way. Sarah, (laughs) how's that? Sounded great. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Fermentista. She's the maker of fermented veggies using local farm ingredients. Welcome, Sarah. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Totally. We always love when we have um, a Sarah guest because then we become a powerful trinity. (laughs) Yes, it's the Sarah show today. Yeah. So it's always, you know, some of my favorite shows. So I can tell this one can be a good one. (laughs) Exactly. So I know Sarah from the Portland Farmer's Market. She has a booth there and sells her fermented veggies, but we want to make sure that other people can connect with you. So what is your, what's the best way for people to find you on the internet? Is it your Instagram? Uh, yeah, Instagram. Um, I have yet to convince myself that I want to put the work into starting up a website that I probably won't keep up on. Um, so it's Instagram for now. Um, but you can uh, reach out to me um, through DMs or anything there if anyone has questions. Perfect. And your Instagram ham- handle is Fermentista, right? The Fermentista. The Fermentista. Perfect. Well, um, make sure to connect people with you that way. And I'm glad that you said you didn't have a website up yet because I was searching for one because that's usually the first way that I find about people when I'm researching who's going to be on. And I couldn't really find one, but I didn't dig that hard. And well, so I, I dig deep and I couldn't find one. <laughs> well, I think maybe that's about- something I should work on, but also you have no yet. LinkedIn stuff. You have like, you're like a secret person you're- on the internet. Uh, I think it's more laziness than intentional, but that might be something for me to uh, address going forward. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think it's laziness because I see how much work you're doing in the kitchen with these veggies. So I think that it just might be that your efforts are better focused on vegetable prep than they are on um, internet coding. (laughs) I appreciate that. I am at capacity right now. And so you're right. Maybe I don't need people to be able to find me right now. I think you're going to keep you a secret. Yeah. When you're ready, you'll find somebody to do your interview. There you go. (laughs) So you came from California, it sounds like. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Um, From the sticks, a little tiny, tiny town called Mountain Ranch um, in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. Very beautiful. But I definitely got out right after high school. And you went to culinary school. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I went to UC Santa Cruz. I did a double major with biochem and anthropology. Um, didn't use either of those majors. Uh, had took a year to travel, and then I had a year where I was waiting around um, before I was waiting for my partner at the time to get into um, grad school somewhere. So I had a year, and there was a, a local junior college that had a culinary certificate or um, associate's degree. Um, so I did that and then came to Portland and I love it here in Portland. So tell us how you fell in love with fermenting vegetables. Um, so while I was after college in Santa Cruz, I had the best job I've ever had ever was working for a bakery doing farmer's markets. Um, and the trading culture there was pretty lucrative for anyone who had a product that wasn't vegetables. I would just go home with so much produce. I would have fruit. I would have veggies. I would have too much to deal with. Um, my eyes were always bigger than my, um, stomach's not even the right word. Cause there's no way I was going to get through it all. Um, so I would just preserve things however I could, whether it was canning or fermenting or making kombucha or whatever. And so that's where I started 
the process of thinking about excess, like seasonal produce and trying to save it somehow. Um, and then I read, I think a little too much Michael Pollan. Uh, and I oh. believe that, um, uh, Farmers are going to save the world, um, but I also am, don't have the work ethic that they do to get up that early every day of the week um, to be a farmer. So I was working in restaurants in Portland, um, but feeling like I needed a project. I needed some potential exit from that because it, uh, it, was, it was great job, fun community, but also hours are... Uh, late and not conducive to like a healthy sleep schedule. Um, so I would hang out with farmers because um, I respected the work that they were doing and thought that they were, um, uh, like I said, they're the ones who are going to save the world. So I would end up with a ton of extra veggies just, just hanging out with them because there's so much farm waste, which is fine. Compost is great. Um, but I would go home and ferment it and then give it back to the farmers. And at one point I just had the idea, I was like, well, why don't I try to turn this into a thing where when someone has something in season, I can buy it from them, give them money for their hard work and then turn around and sell it to people who want delicious fermented vegetables in their fridge. Um, so that was my journey, I guess. And That's what cool. year do you have a product to bring to market? Um, I looked back through my notes and spring 2019, um, which was not that long ago was my first, uh, market, uh, Hollywood farmer's market. Um, so that was my first year, but I was making fermented vegetables professionally before that. So I was working for the restaurant Tusk and again, I felt like I needed a project. Um, and I was front of house cause the money's better. Uh, but I petitioned them. I asked if I could get my food processing license out of their space and then do vegetable ferments for the restaurant. And they said, whatever, sure. Um, so that was at least a year before I started in farmer's markets. I was uh, being able to experiment um, in a restaurant and see all of the beautiful Northwest produce that comes through. Um, yeah, there you go. That's, That's cool. really cool because um, you kind of get to see both sides of it because a lot of times people are either doing products for a restaurant or they're doing products to sell outside of the restaurant. And the licensing is usually different for those two things because, um, you know, if you're a restaurant, you go through the health department. And if you're selling a product, you go through the Department of Agriculture. So I had a weird arrangement with Tusk where... Um, uh, I got my food processing license through the ODA because the, there's so much bureaucratics. Uh, it's so silly. It's, it's safe to ferment, but restaurants can't do it because the health department doesn't like it. But I had a license through the ODA. So when the health department came to inspect the facility, there's like, there's a license number just sitting there on the wall and the uh, so then it's not their jurisdiction anymore and then they don't care and it, and it's fine. And it's, um, yeah, bureaucracy is funny, but, uh, if you know the rules, you can figure out how to make them work for you. 
It's a really good way to do it though, because, um, you know, I've had lots of restaurant friends who will ask me just because they know that I, um, can and ferment and stuff about how they can do it in the restaurant. And the answer is always that it's not easy because they, the health department or, you know, the health department want to can and ferment in restaurants. So, well, you, really- you, you can, um, file what's called the variance. And you have to file a process and everything, but the approval has to go so high up in the county health department that it's very slow process. So we always say go through Department of Ag. It's much faster and straightforward. Yeah, that's yeah, a good it, way. It wasn't that hard. It's yeah. cool that you do it while you were at the restaurant and then have a space to do it. And that's really nice. Well, yeah. so anything that I sold at farmer's markets was not made in the Tusk space. Um for a while, I did have two licenses because it's by location. Oh. Um, so I work out of a, um, a commissary kitchen um, for all of the farmer's market stuff. And I'm not working at Tusk anymore. Once the pandemic happened, there was a whole big shutdown, obviously. And mm-hmm. I um, haven't gone back. <laughs> wow. Is your that you're working out of now the Pittman building? Um, it's the red. Um oh. I'm in oh, New nice. Foods Kitchen, which is a wonderful space. If anyone is trying to produce locally, it is a vegan kitchen, so your products have to be vegan. But um, I speak very highly of that whole facility, and um, they get my my reference for sure. If somebody wanted to work there, who would they contact? Uh, Joe Miller of New Foods Kitchen. I bet that's Googleable, but um, uh, yeah, that's cool. So I wanted to know, has your biochemistry degree come in handy doing fermented foods? Um, I wouldn't say that you need a a biochem degree at all to ferment because the processes are so simple, but I think it has given me a level of confidence to speak about things um, that I wouldn't have had otherwise, just understanding on a molecular level how things work. Uh, I didn't do a ton of microbiome, but there was a lot of, but there was some of that. Um, I think it makes me feel confident in the processes in a way that I wouldn't, if I didn't have it, but I by no means think that it is important to have a science degree to ferment. It is, it's, it's a very simple process and everyone should feel comfortable doing it. I think that's um, good feedback for sure. I think you can always become like an expert or learn more about it or even study it just as a science. But I also do think that it's really accessible to people to do for sure. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and hear about all of the uh, fun flavors and products you bring to market. Oregon State University's College of Agricultural Sciences and the Food Innovation Center are proud sponsors of Meaningful Marketplace. With a mission to serve all Oregonians, we are committed to giving voice to those whose food and agricultural stories are not always heard. By providing access and opportunity for a more diverse and just food system, because food brings people together. Oh, Sarah, tell us about your favorite product that you have available now at farmer's markets. Ooh, okay. So that's a tough one because right now, this minute, it would have to be the fermented salsa. But if you talk to me later this week when my fermented Jimmy Nardellos are coming out of the crock, it'll probably have to be those ones. What's a Jimmy uh, Nardello, a pepper? A pepper. It's an Italian sweet pepper. Um, 
And it's so good on everything. Pizza, eggs, sandwiches, salads, stir fries, everything. Um, yeah, just a sweet red pepper. It's delicious. And you did those last year, right? Are those the peppers? Mm-hmm. Here, yeah, I got some of those from you. They were really good. I, I like Jimmy Nardello's a lot because they're so versatile. They, they like everyone can eat them, whereas a lot of other peppers are too spicy for people or, or yeah. you know, they have a flavor that people don't like specifically. But you brought me some of your salsa that you're doing, your green salsa, and you brought it to me at the market this week. Thank you for that. It's delicious. I've already shared it with my family. Thank you. <laughs> and you um, can- this sorry, continue. Yeah. You get your tomatillos for that one from empowered flowers. And I get a lot of stuff from them too at the Woodstock farmer's market. Great. Um, yeah, I, uh, see them every other week at people's co-op. Um, Adriana, um, Jolene, um, yeah, they're great. Also in addition, so I don't, the batch that you got was probably mostly uh, or probably was all empowered flowers. But what I really like being able to do is have farmers who reach out to me when they have extra of something. So for the previous batch of tomatillo salsa, the salsa verde, uh, Lacewing Farm, who is at PSU, um, Irina, um, and uh, she will wait till the end of the market. And if she doesn't have, you know, I'll, I'll let her know, like I have salsa going in, I could take up to 10 pounds or I have this going in and I can take up to 25 pounds at the end of the market. Um, so then they'll be able to bring me what didn't sell and I'll be able to give them money for it so they can still make a profit on that produce that day. So that is, um, another fun, um, farmer from the same community that we're all a part of. Yeah. I always make that as a suggestion to people who are just joining the farmer's market community, like as vendors, no matter what you make, you can kind of find, um, you know, really wonderful produce that farmers would love to sell to you at the end of the day, because otherwise they either compost it or, you know, just take excess home and can't get through it. And so if you are a vendor at the farmer's market, just go around and talk to everybody at the end of the day and say, you know, if you ever have anything you want to sell me, I'll buy this. And so I end up going to not just the farmer's markets I work at, but the ones in my neighborhood, I'll just go up at the end of the day. And I have farmers that will just text me like, I have 60 pounds of carrots left over and, you know, carrots won't hold. They, they really need to be used. And so then I can just zip up and get them and use them and they're stoked and I'm stoked and it kind of works out for everybody. Yeah, I I agree. I love that system where people reach out when they have something and I'm able to purchase it from them. Hey, Sarah Masoni, have you seen like an influx of fermented foods at the Food Innovation Center of people wanting to sell fermented foods in the marketplace? I mean, we see it coming and going every summer during harvest season. Yeah. I I wouldn't say there's been a huge uptick in it right now. I was thinking about that. I think people are kind of all over the place um, and kind of focusing on beverages. Sarah, have you thought about doing the f- fermented kvass or, you know, some kind of different kind of vegetable-based beverage? Um, so I used to, before the pandemic, do brine shots at yeah. the market. Um, and people really loved those that then it was a pandemic and it didn't make sense to do that. So I started bottling the excess brine and selling that. And especially in the winter, I feel like vegetables are less juicy. And so I wasn't getting a ton of that and people kept asking about it. So when I was doing a batch of say beet kraut, 
um, the, like the peels and the waste from that are really easy to stick in a gallon jar with salt water and make a beet kvass. But I wasn't, I'm not trying to branch into a beverage direction, Mm -hmm. but, um, I would make, uh, excess brine because there was obviously a market for the brine. Do you think bring that back if, um, if we can sample and the pandemic isn't a thing? Um, yeah, I think the, the shots at the market were really fun. Uh, people, I would have people who come up and just wait. They knew me that all, they were just there for the brine. They, you know, waiting their turn. Um, uh, I think and that was really fun. I think it's fun to have interactive things like that. You know, I miss that mm-hmm. in the, because there would be all kinds of opportunities like that, whether it's, um, you know, brine shots with you or tasting coffee or tasting, you know, kombucha, whatever. It's kind of part of the interaction and chatting about what we all do. So I really, I really miss that. I hope it comes back at some point in time. Um, mm-hmm. we'll sort of see how it goes, I guess. Yeah. Last year without samples was a little rough. Um, but that's okay. Uh, can you, everyone. Sarah, can you explain fermentation? Um, I think a lot of people know that stuff is fermented, but can you tell us a little bit about how you feel about lactobacillus and the natural state of the vegetables and how you convert that power of those inherent bacteria into the fermentation process? Yeah, so um, vegetables grown in a field, especially a healthy field with good soil and organic practices, um, they're going to have good bacteria on them, a lot of lactobacillus. Um, and then if you create the right environment, um, namely if you add salt and exclude oxygen, um, the bacteria that are going to make you sick don't really stand much of a chance in that, or not that they don't stand a chance, but they, they aren't the, the prime competitors. So you're going to get uh, bacteria that produce lactic acid. Um, so they take that salty anaerobic condition and they start to eat the sugars and the vegetables and produce lactic acid. And then as that culture gets acidified, the bacteria that are, that could make you sick, they don't stand a chance living in there. So it's, it's preserved in a safe way for consumption. Um, and then the lactobacillus, they don't harm your system. If anything, um, it's, it's good to have a nice variety of cultures in your body. Um, and once so, you're, once you put everything into the, your brine and you have it salted, how long does it take for a product to become fermented? So it really depends. Um, I mean, it'll start fermenting, uh, immediately. Uh, my shortest ferments are three days. My longest ferments are three weeks. Um, my kraut during the summer goes a week, which is objectively pretty short, but I am trying to move things faster. And I like the younger, crunchier krauts. And I think that, um, there's less of those on the market. Uh, I think traditionally krauts can get, you know, four to six weeks, if not longer. Um, so I, I think I hit a niche of people who maybe don't like the softer, funkier krauts and gravitate towards mine. Um, and then in the winter, the krauts go longer because the cabbage, the cabbage that I'm able to get is just a little hardier. It just needs a little more time to break down. 
um, which is lucky because in the winter markets are a little slower. So I do have more flexibility in leaving things in the crock longer without messing up a production schedule. So you, once they hit the fermentation level that you want, are you doing that by taste or by visual or by, are you checking the pH? How do you know it's... So I do check the pH. Um, ODA wants that and I'm happy to do it. Um, but you can, I can always taste if it's done or not. Um, the magic number, the magic pH number is 4.6 for botulism, which all of my ferments are well under that. And if I taste something even close to 4.6, it doesn't taste done to me. So that's, it's not a concern for me that I'm not hitting the safe numbers. Um, but I do, I do check those. Um, it's a textural thing as well. Some, you know, some of the ferments, I don't want to go too long because the longer the organisms are eating the vegetables, they're breaking down structure and, you know, you don't want something mushy. So, um, so yeah, it's taste, it's texture. How do you stop the fermentation then? So, um, salt every, so chop, and salt everything put it in a crock. Um, I like to use the German style crocks with the water ring on top. I prefer oxygen controlled ferments. I think you get slightly less funky flavors, which is the style that I'm going for. And once uh, the fermentation is as complete as I would like it to be, unload the crock, put it in jars, put those jars in the fridge. And then the cold temperature is going to essentially stop the fermentation. Technically it is still happening slowly, but I think that those are pretty negligible amounts. Um, so for so yeah, fermentation, you can do it at room temperature. So the, the initial ferment, um, is room temperature. Yeah. Uh, some people like a slightly chilled room. Um, the facility I work out of has a, um, you know, just a thermostat. So I'm going around, you know, 68, 70 degrees, um, works fine for my short ferments. Um, and then again, yeah, as soon as you're ready to stop the ferment, just move it into a cold, uh, refrigeration space and, um, it essentially pauses. Of course, we want people to buy your fermented stuff, but if somebody was adventuresome and they wanted to try fermenting something for the very first time, what vegetable would you suggest they start with? Um, I generally would lean someone towards cabbage just because there's so many resources on sauerkraut online. Um, but one of the ones that I started doing frequently, um, before this was a professional thing for me was, was the salsa. Um, everything you would put in a salsa, except for the lime, I used a Vitamix, just hit the pulse button a few times until it's chunky texture uh, leave it on the counter, uh, cover the top with a, um, you don't need a weight or anything because it's, it's a liquid. So a weight wouldn't protect the top anyways. Um, so cover, cover the mouth of the jar with a cloth or something to keep flies and dust out, leave it on your counter for three days and then move it into the fridge and you've got fermented salsa and it's wonderful. And it'll last a long time in your fridge because of the natural acidity coming from the lactic fermentation. Um, it'll last longer than a fresh salsa in your fridge as well. I'm going to try that. Have you ever had any um, fermentation like nightmares? <laughs> Anything that happened? 
Um, I've definitely had some things not go well, um, but knock on wood, uh, I haven't lost more than a couple like big batches of things. There was one time, oh, this was while I was at Tusk. Uh, they had a big, they had a big standing order of romaine lettuce and I had done it to where it was good. Um, I was doing more of a, a kvass style where it was a salt brine and the lettuce and there was a batch that had just a beautiful, crisp, almost like cucumber note to it. Really flavorful, Brian. And then there was another day where I must have found like the bottom bar, uh, bottom bucket of the cat of the romaine that had been in there too long, and it was awful. I felt so bad pouring that out in the sink because everyone had to be in the room for that. It was um. So that's the thing with ferments. If they go bad, you, when you know, you know. If, yeah. if they're okay, they're okay. If, if they're they not smell, okay, it's you know, if they smell poopy, it's probably E. coli. E. coli yeah, this was has, bad. Has a really strong <laughs> poopy smell, and <laughs> if you sense. get that poopy smell, you should throw it away. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I have, I have um, explosive. Um, uh, project that I did one time where I was, when I was testing recipes for my cookbook and I was trying to tell people things that they could do with, with all the waste, you know, so stuff that they would normally compost. So this was like, um, taking the, you know, ends of rhubarb, um, and the, the pieces of strawberry tops and stuff and, and fermenting it. And I, I was trying to make like a sparkly beverage, but I had never really played around with the different kinds of yeasts that people use for like making, you know, like wine or beer or things like that. Champagne. So I dropped some, um, champagne yeast in with all of that pulp stuff and I let it sit on the counter for just two days. That was it, two days. And then I um, opened the bottle. My friend Brooke, who was working on the illustrations of my book, was over in my kitchen. And I opened it, and it seriously sprayed every single drop of the giant bottle, like, into her face. She had this, she has this long, beautiful hair, like, dripping, gooey, funky rhubarb. <laughs> oh, no. All over her, like, everywhere. Oh, dear. I had an exploding hot sauce last year. Um, I stopped selling it at the market because I didn't want to do that to people. And I had people asking like, where's the hot sauce? I'm like, well, I'm having some technical difficulties and it's exploding. They're like, we know we'd still like it, please. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I had someone who, um, I have a friend who brings me back hot sauce from Barbados every year and he lives here and he, um, like brings it back in his suitcase, you know, but there, they don't have a lot of the same, like, food safety handling laws that we have. So sometimes he'll bring me stuff that's in like an old water bottle or like whatever. <laughs> Do you eat it? I totally eat it. I, I eat it. Yes. I would. And it, I opened one up and it was like this kind of brown tamarind hot sauce. Mm. And it was, it looked like slugs crawling out of the bottle. <laughs> like live, you know, Did it but smell it, good. You must, it must have smelled good. Smelled otherwise good. you wouldn't it's, eat it good it's just like that stuff is living you know so it's like yeah. you're not always in control of it and sometimes you just go with it <laughs> yeah carbon dioxide it's a byproduct yeah. so um tell us what farmers markets you do so we can send people your way Oh, love that. Um, This year, I'm in six of them. Uh, Every weekend, PSU, Hollywood, King, and Montevilla. And then I sporadically do Beaverton and every other week, uh, People's Co-op. Employees? 
to help I'm you? sorry. What was that question? Yes, I do. I have, um, I have two market employees and then they both help in the kitchen and then one extra kitchen, kitchen gal. That's awesome. Sarah, you have to, Sarah Marshall, you hear that? Sarah has helpers. Oh yeah. It's <laughs> lovely. I, uh, love not working. It's wonderful. Um, <laughs> oh, it'd be nice to make some money, but, uh, I think at this point I'll, I'm happy to ride out the, the current well, situation. Yeah. I I've been having some problems and you'll understand this because I know you handwrite all your own labels and that's, that's a problem I, still. I do all of my own bottling and labeling and all, you know, all that stuff. And so I've worn out the finger, my fingertips and they're dislocated on the ends from putting bottles on like this. Oh no. <laughs> bottles over 10 years. So I, I'm needing to hire someone to help me. If any listeners out there, I'm looking for a very special person to be able to come into my home. So, um, yeah, so that's why Sarah's mentioning that because I need, I need some help. My fingers are blown out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, my, my thought is, uh, if it, if it makes things happen to hire someone to do it, then do it. Um, I don't know. Yeah. That's what you got to do. So wait a second, you're handwriting all your labels, Sarah. Yeah. So it wasn't a problem the first two years and this year it's definitely a time sink, but it also, uh, it takes time to change your system. And so, and I have all of these labels printed. I think that stamps are going to be my first solution. Um, I don't necessarily want to pay a designer right now to like redo all of my labels. Um, because they hand write your stamp and then hand write your thing and then make a stamp out of that. I think that that is the direction I'm going to go. It it really wasn't a problem last year. I would sit and watch a couple episodes on Netflix and get them all done. But this year I'm hanging out with friends and I pull out my labels and I'm writing them. I'm like, this isn't what I want to be doing now, actually. Um, there's local guy um it's called atlas stamps atlas i'm gonna write that down yeah it's on broadway and he'll make you stamps for whatever size you want because you know we hand stamp our batch numbers and stuff on the jars and Mm -hmm. and we uh, date stamps that were the right size so he built them for us but he can also do he could take your handwriting and make a stamp out of it for sure and that would be great and then you can up those labels. I know that that's always a thing that everyone has to think about too. <laughs> Sometimes well, if you order them and have thousands of labels, you have to figure out how to use those before you come up with a yeah. new one. Um, and especially for the first year, there was so much experimentation happening and I didn't know what batches of what I was going to make. It made so much sense to have a, a pre-printed label and then write in the ingredients. Um, but now again, you know, things change, businesses grow and, um, that system is no longer working and I will switch it out hopefully sooner than later. Um, but I don't want to do a full redesign just yet. Oh, I see you have blank lines that you fill in. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, that looks fun. It's still only a few hours a week, but it's still time sitting down I mean it's nice when there's like a good Netflix show or something yeah and do you uh wholesale your fermented vegetables to stores and things I have a few wholesale accounts um it doesn't work great with my business model just because consistency throughout the year is not something that I am comfortable committing to um even cabbage which is like one of my staples 
I, I will only buy it locally and there'll come a time in like late winter, early spring where I won't be able to get cabbage. And so I have to stockpile things if there's an account that I owe things to. Um, but I am inside the store at people's co-op. Um, and then both, uh, Pecone's corner has bought some things before they're a, a trendy butcher shop on Sandy. Um, but I think that farmer's markets are the model that I am currently trying to pursue. There might come a point where I pivot, but at this point, um, farmer's markets are, um, I think for you, it makes a lot of sense because your product is, is, um, you know, it is something living. It's something that needs to be created. And it's something that's really special to this time and place because you're getting all these really unique things from the local farmers. And, and so of course you're not going to have thousands of pounds of, you know, leeks. I know you do that one. And I wish a lot of people do that, but, um, that, you know, if don't be pressured into doing wholesale, if it's not where you want to be or what you want to do, I think that the way you're doing it works really well for you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. I think that's something that we, we hear a lot from businesses, especially in their first couple of years Mm -hmm. um, that they feel like they have to do wholesale. And I don't think that everybody does. I think if you can do farm markets and you can do enough of them to make it work, that's, that's a great way to do it. The best way to make money is to sell it directly to your consumer. I, I do like that as well, especially with the seasonality of everything. Um, I have so many products during the year and it's so happenstance what I'm going to be buying from farmers. You know, like last year I had tomato salsa first and tomatillo salsa was an afterthought. This year there was a heat wave and the tomatoes had a late start. And so everyone was trying to move tomatillos. So I had lots of batches of the salsa verde before the red salsa. Um, And farmers markets work well with that because if someone comes up asking for something, you can tell them like, you, you're looking for what? Have, have you seen that at the market? I haven't. Um, <laughs> I mean, a little less sassy, but uh, the seasonality <laughs> at a farmer's market is um, it's easy to not apologize for not having something that's not in season. Um, well, I think, and people so. know to expect that and they, um, they like that. And then they, it makes them really look forward to when you're going to mm-hmm. bring back that thing. Like we have you know, sauces where I'll only make 20 bottles of once a year, but the people that know me and know my business know that. And so then that's why they'll come. They'll be like, when are you going to do the, you know, whatever it is, Bloody Mary mix. And they know I only do that once because it's hard and expensive because I have to boil (laughs) the groundwork's tomatoes for like three hours. And so I can only do that one time because it's, it's too much of my time, but that's what makes it really special, you know? That's yes. cool. I did see you had a really cool machine on your Instagram that you used um, for slicing or cutting leeks. The it Nemco like it was a, Easy Slicer. It is I, my it, the best $500 I've ever spent. Tell me about it. Um, uh, yeah, it, I mean, you can see it, uh, it it's somewhere on the Instagram. Um, I I'll do leeks in it. I'll do cabbage in it. Anything that I want a nice, pretty cut on, I will. Um, sometimes I'll send produce through the, um, like a Cuisinart Roboku food processor if, if it doesn't matter how it comes out, but for anything that I want to have a nice, like clean cut on, it's like a, a mandolin on steroids, uh, 
you, it's got a little slicer, you turn it, you push the thing, the vegetables go through. It's great. It is, it's, sorry. It would for, for lemongrass. Um, I think it would. Lemongrass seems a little tough. Um, I used to get my blades sharpened. Um, there's a lovely gentleman, um, Gabriel from Dragonfly Forage who has sharpened them before and it was great. But then my second year I had him sharpen them again and it just, the leaks that everyone complains about doing the leaks cause it's just such a grind to get them. Um, so I ended up just buying a, a new set of blades and I think that, you know, maybe every 10,000 pounds of vegetables, I just need to get a new blade. Um, so the lemongrass, I think that it would work. I think that it would be some like elbow grease and you might have to not pack it as full. Um, but I think that you could get a nice clean round on it if you had a, a fresh blade and you were intentional about how you packed the device. Yeah. Right now I use a meat slicer and I, um, like I have to get the leeks like really cold, almost frozen. And then I use a meat slicer and hold it. But every time I do it, I'm like, I could so easily not do this right. <laughs> like, Cause I have to like, hold a bundle of leeks. And Sounds then, like, dangerous, Sarah. Yeah. Well, I know. if I, you ever want uh, to pass off some leeks or lemongrass and do an experiment, I would be happy to put them through the slicer and see how it works cool. for you. I do that because if it works, I will totally get one. <laughs> it's great for everything. I don't know why every restaurant doesn't have one. It's like you buy it once and it, it just, I don't know. I mean, it is a manual contraption, so it is like physical labor, but I don't think it takes that much time than cutting everything and throwing it through a robo coup anyway. Yeah. Sarah, cool. do you have any words of advice for someone who might be thinking about starting a food business? Ooh, um, I should have seen this question coming and been a little prepared. Um, I think that something that I did at the start that made my life easier and maybe it was a luxury to be in the position that I was in, um, whenever there was something that was daunting to me, like designing labels, um, I just found a professional who did that and paid them to do that. If this was going to be the point in the process where I didn't continue because I didn't have something done, find a professional and get it done. Um, hopefully you've got enough, uh, backing behind you to make those choices possible. But, um, I think that that is something that made my life easier. Just the forgiveness of not doing everything myself. That's great advice. I think it's really good advice. It's ad advice that I still need to follow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hire someone sounds like. Yeah. Hire somebody. That's a good, good yeah. advice. I like it. Well, we want to make sure to send people directly to you. So what's the best way for people to buy from you? Farmer's markets. Um, PSU, Hollywood, King, Montevilla every weekend. Beaverton hit or miss. People's co-op every other. Perfect. Well, Sarah, thanks for coming on the show. So great to hear your story and hear about all of your awesome vegetables and your connections to farmers. And I think you're right that we should lift up and elevate all of our farmers because they're so important to our world right now, for sure. They do the hard work. Yes, they do. Um, 
And thank both of uh, thank you both of you for having me on. And I was listening to your past podcasts, and there's a lot of really inspirational women who you've um, interviewed. I think I'm on the beginning of my journey, but it's really great to see people who have really just like come into um, their professions here. So thanks for sharing everyone's stories. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. We record Missoni and Marshall live every week. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform like iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you to our audio engineer, Alon, and our production assistant, Chelsea. If you want to be a guest on the show, you can submit a message on our Instagram, Missoni and Marshall, and we will be back next week. I will be back next week. Sarah, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Bye. Bye for now. Market of Choice is a proud sponsor of Meaningful Marketplace. As a family-owned organ grocer for 42 years, Market of Choice strives to inspire, mentor, and assist a diverse group of local producers and foster equity in our communities. With 11 stores in Oregon, Market of Choice supports these craft makers, as well as farmers, fisherfolk, and ranchers, by bringing more than 7,000 local products to market. Together, we form a sustainable, community-based food system that serves our great state. To learn more, go to marketofchoice.com. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.